So we're in Colossians, and we're going back to the beginning of Colossians. We've spent some time in the middle of the letter, and tonight we're going back to the very beginning. But before we get into Colossians, I want to go to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, and you would turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to start at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So these Jews were not on Paul and Silas's side. In fact, they seemed to support Caesar as a king, rejecting Paul's preaching that the Christ was the king, that Jesus was the world's true king. And yet, despite their hostility, they still hit on a very important truth. And it's this. These men have turned the world upside down. And they don't mean it as a compliment. They're not praising the apostles as disruptors who move, move fast and break things. They're not nominating them for 40 under 40 lists. They hate the fact that these men have turned the world upside down. But it's true anyway, because the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel truth that Jesus took our sins upon himself when he died on a Roman cross, and that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, fundamentally rewrites the story of human history and our individual stories. It rewrites human history and our own stories. When we believe the gospel, we surrender control of our identity. We no longer get to choose who we identify ourselves as. We surrender that. For my job, I've had to take quite a few personality tests. Uh, there was one season where I had to take a whole bunch at once, and this was kind of the outcome. So I've taken the Enneagram. It says I'm a wing one, or a, I'm sorry, I'm a one with a wing nine, which is called the reformer. I've taken the Myers-Briggs, which says I'm an ISFJ, which is called the protector. I've taken the DISC, which says I'm highly conscientious, which means that I'm the policy wonk that people don't want to see coming in the hallway. And my fifth beetle appraisal said that I'm a dead ringer for Ringo Starr. I don't know why I had to take that one for work, but apparently it was important. We have all kinds of ways of identifying and understanding ourselves, not just personality tests, but past experiences in our lives and ideologies that we hold. And the gospel comes and says, that's not who you are. You're not any of those things. You are a new creation. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are set apart. You are a saint. And so Paul addresses this letter to the Colossians. He says in verse 2, chapter 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul calls believers in the gospel saints. And that means that everything must change. 
about a person's life when they're a saint. You know who understood this very well? In the book of Acts, there's a Roman governor named Felix. And in the last seven chapters of Acts, Paul gets arrested and he gets bounced around from bureaucrat to bureaucrat. Nobody really knows what to do with Paul. They just kind of shuffle him off to the next person. And at one point, he ends up before Felix, who's the Roman governor. And Felix's wife is Jewish. And, Paul, and Felix wants a bribe from Paul. He wants Paul to give him money for his freedom. And so he thinks, well, I'll let my wife visit with Paul because she's Jewish and Paul's Jewish. And they can talk about Jewish stuff. And then maybe Paul will give me a bribe. And my wife will be happy. It'll give her a way to spend the time. And maybe I'll get some money from Paul. But here's what happens instead. Acts 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix was right to be alarmed. Paul and Drusilla weren't talking about Jewish culture or Jewish religion or exchanging Jewish recipes. Paul was presenting a message of total life change through faith in Christ. And Felix knew that if she believed this, everything about her would change. And then maybe, just maybe, everything about him would have to change too. The gospel changes everything because the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus is at the center of everything. In Colossians 1.17, it even says that Jesus holds our material world together. Everything is held together by Jesus. He's at the center of everything. And this truth that Jesus is at the center of everything and therefore the gospel changes everything, it's at the heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And it's a worldwide phenomenon. Paul's letting the Colossians know that this is going on all over the world. So in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The whole world has been turned upside down by the good news of Jesus, and it's bearing fruit in the Colossian church, too. Just ask Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave in Colossae who ran away from his master Philemon. And while he was running away, he met Paul. He became a follower of Christ. And he returned to Philemon's house. And at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says that he's sending this letter with Tychicus. And he says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Onesimus, who is one of you? As a Christ follower, Onesimus is now a brother to the Christians in Colossae. Before he was Onesimus the slave, his name literally means useful. But now he's a new creation in Christ. And so Paul says, he's one of you now. He's a brother to you. And they'll need to relate to him as a fellow family member in God's family. Because the gospel changes everything. Does that make sense? So who brought the gospel to the Colossians? Well, not Paul. Paul didn't found this church. In fact, it's likely that Paul had never even been to the Colossian church. Didn't know these people personally. But there was a man named Epaphras who brought the gospel to Colossae, and he devoted himself to helping the converts there grow in Christ. And Epaphras has visited Paul in prison, and he shared what God is doing in the Colossian church. And so verses 7 and 8, Paul says, 
you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And near the end of his letter, where Paul's giving his greetings, he writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. In other words, Epaphras is awesome. He's just awesome. He brought the gospel to Colossae. He works hard in his ministry, and he knows that the end goal is maturity in faith. And here's the beautiful thing. Anybody can be Epaphras. Anybody can be like Epaphras. He wasn't seminary trained. He didn't have a formal title, as far as we know. He loved Jesus, he loved people, and he was willing to work hard for their maturity in faith. He might have looked very much like a TCF home group leader or somebody who disciples other people. So that's Epaphras. And there's Christ-like fruit growing in the church at Colossae. Going back to verse 3 in chapter 1, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. They have faith in Christ Jesus. They're all in with him. They have hope in where all this is going. And they have love for the saints, love for each other, which is the outworking of their faith and hope. Faith, hope, and love. All are present and increasing in bearing fruit in the Colossian church. And Paul says, we've heard good reports from Epaphras. And so we're praying that the Father will take you deeper and deeper into the gospel. And that takes us into the really meaty part of tonight's text, which is verses 9 through 12. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The gospel changes everything. Believing the gospel doesn't, add, doesn't just add new content into the databases of our brains. It's entering into a whole new way of being. When we believe the gospel, we enter into a whole new way of being. To paraphrase Dallas Willard, salvation is not merely a moment. Salvation is a life. It's a life. And it's a life where we're filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And being strengthened in all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks to the Father. So Paul starts in verse 9 by praying that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul doesn't just pray for wisdom and understanding for the Colossians, but for spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's because what looks wise and right isn't always wise and right. 
Some things have an appearance of wisdom and understanding, but only according to the elemental spirits of the world. Remember from last week, Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you can't base your relationship with God on what you don't do. You can't base your relationship with God on what you don't do. But everything in our flesh, our natural self, drives us to think that way. Everything in our natural self drives us to think that we should base our relationship with God on things that we don't do. I don't smoke, I don't drink alcohol, I don't vote Democrat, I don't let my kids watch Disney, I don't listen to secular music, whatever it is, abstaining from those things has an appearance of wisdom. Stay away from possible harmful influences. But they don't address the real problem in the human heart, and that is indulgence of the flesh. Our natural self, the part of us that doesn't think that it needs God at all. In other words, if you boast in what you don't do, what you're letting into your heart is far worse than anything that you're abstaining from. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the older brother said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He was the obedient son. He had never crossed any of his father's lines, but he also used that obedience as a weapon against his father when he implored him to come into the feast for his brotherhood return. We need spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that comes from learning from Jesus. It comes from taking his yoke upon us, being his students in his school of life. As we're his faithful students, we will sniff out what is plausible and what has an appearance of wisdom, but is really just another form of slavery. Amen? Next, in verse 10, the Colossians are to be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit and increasing. That's exactly what Paul had said earlier about the gospel, what was happening with the gospel across the world. It was bearing fruit and increasing, and the Colossians were to be doing the same. The gospel was spreading all over the world, but the purpose wasn't to get more members, start more programs, form a political party, buy up land, or just get big. The purpose was to launch a new kind of human being in the world, a human being in the mold of Jesus Christ. Epaphras was working hard for their maturity in the faith. And elsewhere, Paul tells the Galatians that he was in the pains of childbirth until Christ was formed in them. So the gospel was growing out across the world horizontally, and as it did, those who believed the gospel were to be growing up in Christ vertically, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. The horizontal growth is important. In Acts, Luke frequently gives the number of the people who are being saved, but the horizontal growth means very little if the people who are being saved aren't actually growing up in Christ's likeness. 
Next, Paul prays, verse 11, that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Strengthened with all power, not to go out and conquer and take new ground, but for endurance and patience with joy. This is the power to withstand the inevitable difficulties that we, that we encounter in life as a result of being a new kind of human being in the mold of Christ. We're inevitably going to face difficulties, and we pray for the power to stand. Paul says in Ephesians 6.13, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Sometimes the grace of God in your life is most evident when you can just keep standing and not go down. In Rocky II, the champ Apollo Creed wants a rematch with Rocky Balboa. Because even though Apollo beat Rocky by decision in their first match, he doesn't feel like he really won because he just won by a judge's decision. And people are calling him a chump and his ego is bruised. And so he wants a rematch with Rocky. But Apollo's trainer doesn't want a rematch. Not at all. He wants nothing to do with Rocky Balboa. And he tells Apollo, he's all wrong for us, baby. I saw you beat that man like I've never seen a man get beat before in my life. And the man kept coming after you. We don't need that kind of man in our lives. Wouldn't it be great if the kingdom of darkness could say that about you? We've thrown everything at this saint that we could possibly throw. And they still continue to trust God and love God and accept their suffering with patience and joy. And they will not go down. Wouldn't it be great if the kingdom of darkness could say that about us? That's being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then finally, in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We give thanks to the Father because none of this came from us. None of this came from us. It was all his plan, and he qualified us to take part in it. I like the English word qualified in this verse, because when we think of qualifying for certain things, we think of our own preparation and effort. So if you're going to qualify for the Boston Marathon, you have to achieve a certain time in other marathons. If you're going to qualify for certain scholarships, you have to achieve a certain PSAT or ACT score. If you're going to qualify for a loan, you have to have a certain credit score. If you're going to qualify for the salvation of your eternal soul, God has already done the work. God's already done the work. And through faith in Christ Jesus, you enter into that life. You couldn't have achieved that on your own because you flunked all the tests. Your credit score was negative and you blew it over and over again. In chapter two, Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead as in non-living. Being dead in your trespasses qualifies you for nothing but eternal separation from God. But God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Amen? A theologian named Fred Sanders says, The gospel is God-sized because God puts himself into it. The gospel is God-sized because God puts himself into it. Woe to us if our gospel is man-sized. It's just based on what we can achieve, what we can pull ourselves up and do. 
maybe living by the elemental spirits of the world, or maybe by what has the appearance of wisdom. No, we believe in a God-sized gospel, and we walk in that life rooted in Christ, and we give thanks to the Father because, as Paul says in verses 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love this verse. I think I've quoted it a lot this year. And I love it because it describes a rescue mission. And it's recently made me think of the the Thailand cave disaster story. Maybe you're familiar with this. There's a series on Netflix right now about it, where 12 teenage soccer players and their coach entered a cave and they became trapped uh, deep within the cave due to heavy rainfall and flooding. They, were, they ended up two and a half miles from where they went into the cave, and they were trapped. And for 18 days, they lived in this cave. It was a week before they even made contact with any rescuers. And when the time came for the rescue, the team of divers had to sedate each person, they had to knock them fully unconscious, and strap them to their back, and swim the two and a half miles through narrow crevices a lot of times with zero visibility, and re-administering the knockout drug along the way. Can you imagine what that would have been like? All 13 people who were trapped were saved. They were put to sleep in in a cave of darkness, and they woke up above ground in the light, surrounded by friends and family. And I think that's a helpful image for emotionally connecting with what God's done for us in Jesus. We were locked away in the domain of our own darkness. We'd sold ourselves to be there through our own sin and rebellion, and we didn't deserve anything better. But, Colossians 2, 13 to 14, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You could say that Christ strapped us to his back and led us through the floodwaters to this new country of salvation in which we live, in the light, surrounded by the family of God. In fact, that's what baptism is. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that newness of life is just what Paul's been saying in this first chapter of Colossians. It's being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And it's giving thanks to God the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So all of this demands that a question be asked. And that's where are you living? Where are you living? We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's a fact. That has happened. But where are you living in your day to day? Because even though you're in a new place, you can still have the mindset and the habits of the old place of the domain of darkness. And here are a few ways in which you know. 
If you measure your faithfulness to Christ by what you do or by what you don't do, that's living in the domain of darkness. If you keep trying to be qualified for your salvation, that's living in the domain of darkness. If you get caught up in rules over relationships, that's the domain of darkness. If your priority isn't bearing fruit, but instead it's looking good before others, that's living in the domain of darkness. If you keep obsessing over past sins, even though they've been nailed to the cross, that's living in the domain of darkness. But you don't have to live there. If your wisdom and understanding come from being rooted in Christ and nothing else, that's living in the kingdom of God's Son. If you're bearing fruit in good works and increasing in the knowledge of God, that's living in the Son's kingdom. And if in all your trials you experience God's power so that you can keep holding on with patience and joy, that's living in the Son's kingdom. And if the natural overflow of your heart is gratitude because you're done looking at how you fall short and your eyes are on the Father who has qualified you, that's living in the Son's kingdom too. And that's a great place to live, is it not? A couple of weeks ago we looked at how when we put on Christ, our life together is a great place to live. But that's only possible when we live in the kingdom of God's beloved Son first. We have to live there first. He is the source, the head, from which our life flows. The gospel changes everything. It's bearing fruit and increasing across the world, and in you and in me. Let's not settle for living in the cave. Let's keep walking further up and further into the life that is salvation. Amen? Amen.